I'm delighted to be here with you today. Um, it's been um, a very useful and informative uh, visit for us. As Sally said, we strive to get out, um, understand our region. It's a district that's composed of many, many disparate uh, economies, and the upstate region in South Carolina is something we've known for some time. is uh, has some very unique characteristics and is undergoing some very unique uh, transformations. And uh, so it's been a pleasure to be able to spend time with people here, find out what's going on, get a feel for things. My topic today, what I'm going to do today is talk about current economic conditions, and I will have time to open it up uh, for Q&A, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, before I begin, um, I mentioned that, you know, we have these, these 12 Federal Reserve banks around the country, and we have our local directors, and, and part of the that's part of the strength and beauty of the system is uh, the diverse uh, sort of governance, decentralized governance arrangement we have. But part and parcel of that arrangement is that uh, when I speak in public, I speak uh, for myself and not for Chairman Bernanke or any other members of the Open Market Committee. Um, so it's important for me to deliver that usual disclaimer every time I speak, and all of my colleagues do as well. The background for talking about today's economic situation is the remarkable uh, boom in housing uh, that ended a couple of years ago. From 1995 to 2005, new housing starts increased by over 50%, uh, and existing home prices, uh, the prices of existing homes tracked over time, increased by over 150%. Now, that's a nationwide average um, piece of data. Um, it varied a lot across regions. For example, the Greenville-Spartanburg area um, the rate of increase in home prices over those 10 years was less than 70%. So there were some areas in the country where home prices increased uh, right fast. Uh, over that interval, the home ownership rate increased tremendously from about 64% to about 69%. Um, and that's a, a very significant increase in the fraction of our population that, that's able to uh, afford a home. Eventually, however, prices grew more rapidly than incomes in many major markets. Essentially, housing demand became satiated, and housing activity peaked in early 2006 across a range of markets. Since then, new housing starts have fallen by 55%, and since mid-2006, home prices have fallen by 18%. So there are a number of fundamental factors that contributed to this boom, low real interest rates, strong income growth, uh, innovations in credit markets that brought sort of new, more flexible products to people that carved off some people formerly thought of as uncreditworthy and found ways to lend to them profitably. Um, but like many other innovations, innovation in lending uh, went too far. And um, it's clear in hindsight now that um, the profitability of lending to subprime, formerly viewed as uncreditworthy borrowers, uh, was masked to some degree by the rap rapidity with which home prices were increasing. Because borrowers, subprime borrowers who got in trouble could refinance, and then to the lender, it looked like, a prof it, like it turned out to be a profitable loan after the fact. In addition, to some extent, some bad credit decisions were made. Um, some mortgage brokers had incentives that, after the fact, looked like they were adversely aligned. It'll take us a few years to be able to parse out the contributions of these various factors to the boom in housing, um, but I have no doubt that the fundamentals uh, played a strong role, I think. A deterioration in the housing market of this magnitude was not 
assigned much probability, I think it's fair to say, um, by participants in that market, borrowers, lenders, um, or investors in the securities backed by these mortgages. Even if it's the case that in retrospect it looked like uh, mistakes uh, have been made and, and that these should have been foreseen. The decline in homeowners' equity in many regions of the country has led to an increase in delinquencies and defaults, particularly among mortgages that were made towards the end of this whole cycle in 2006 and early 2007. As a result, we've seen quite precipitous drops in the prices of many of the, the financial securities that are backed by these pool, pools of these mortgages, either directly or indirectly. The ramification of falling asset prices has led to, is what's led to the dramatic events that we've seen in financial markets uh, since last August. And maybe in the Q&A, I'll, I'll say a little more about what's been going on in financial markets. After the housing market peaked, uh, the steady fall in home construction has been um, a, a constant drag and a sizable drag on overall growth in our economy. Last year, the decline in residential investment subtracted about a percentage point from gr the growth in real gross domestic product, our measure of uh, economic activity. And in the first quarter of this year, it lowered growth by 1.2 percentage points. Looking forward, prospects in the housing market are not that good. Um, just to look at one measure in particular, there's swollen inventories of unsold homes. These continue to depress um, price and, prices and new construction. The vacancy rate for owner-occupied housing, for example, was 2.9% in the first quarter. That's the highest value we've seen in that series in its 52-year history. Most lenders have eliminated uh, the risky uh, mortgage products, the inno these innovative uh, mortgage products I talked about from their lineups. Um, that makes sense given the recent performance of those products, but that makes home ownership more costly than it would have been for somebody in early 2006, for example. Thus, most observers are quite reluctant, uh, very hesitant about calling a bottom in the housing market more broadly or for construction sales or prices in particular. Even if the housing market does manage to bottom out later this year, however, it's likely that any recovery is going to be exceedingly slow. Uh, we've built a lot of houses. Um, there's a huge overhang. It's going to be a while before we work that off and need to build a lot of new houses again. The bad news hasn't been limited to housing. Last year, over 16 million cars and trucks were sold in the country. In the first quarter of 2008, that dropped to 15.3 million units annual rate. And in April and May, the sales rate fell to 14.4 million units. Not surprisingly, motor vehicle assemblies have fallen 21% this year. This is a fairly stiff dose of bad news. There are a couple of components of demand, components of GDP, uh, that have provided somewhat brighter news of late, however. First, the demand for exports has been quite strong due to the uh, robust activity that we've seen abroad. Uh, foreign economies are growing uh, quite strong, particularly in Asia. And due to the weakness of the dollar in foreign exchange Exports added nine-tenths of a percent to real GDP growth in 2006 and 2007, and they're likely to make a fairly healthy contribution uh, this year as well. We've also in, seen surprising indicators of firmness in business investment spending. At the turn of the year, we began hearing anecdotal reports both in our district, particularly from our directors, but also from other contacts around our district, 
was in the January time frame. And, the, and my colleagues were hearing this elsewhere in the country as well, hearing anecdotes of commercial development projects being shelved or canceled, um, just being put on hold. Many of us, as a result, had expected to see a decline in commercial construction in the beginning part of this year. But over the last three months, private, non-residential construction has increased by 4%, uh, some, somewhat surprising. Still, I think it's reasonable to expect some slowing in commercial construction later this year. Much of the reported activity we've seen for the last couple of months reflects projects that were initiated well before the tightening in commercial real estate lending terms uh, took place at the beginning of this year. As these projects move through the pipeline, it's likely that fewer projects are, are on tap to take their place. And indeed, we're seeing some good evidence of this in a really dramatic fall-off in an index of architectural billings, uh, the amount uh, architects are paid to, to, to draw up new plans for stuff. So it wouldn't surprise me, as I said, to see commercial construction uh, soften in coming months. Business spending on equipment and software has also been firmer than I expected over the last several months. For example, the or, uh, indicator we track that's a good bead on, on uh, business spending on equipment is new orders for non-defense capital goods, excluding aircraft. Uh, aircraft is sort of choppy, capital goods for defense. That does whatever defense wants it to do. Uh, the rest reflects private business uh, investment uh, outlook. This covers a large part of equipment investment, and I think it's um, a sign that business capital spending is holding up pretty well. It expanded at a 4% uh, uh, in um, uh, monthly rate in April, and it's gotten to the highest level in terms of the rate of expenditures since 2006. Now, the largest component of demand is consumer spending. It's about two-thirds of our economy. And it's been sluggish. For the first four months of this year, uh, spending rose only two-tenths of a percent. The reason for slow consumer spending growth um, isn't any mystery. Income growth has been restrained, quite restrained. For example, real disposable personal income that's adjusted for inflation and adjusted for changes in taxes. So disposable personal income um, has increased at only a half a percent. Uh, for the first four months of this year. Now, we did get a sales report for May, a retail sales report for May um, late last week, and it did show a noticeable pickup in spending. But this could be attributable to the disbursement of those federal stimulus payments that everybody's talking about. So it's difficult to tell whether it represents a fundamental uh, shift in the trends uh, governing uh, household spending. I mentioned how slowly uh, household income has been growing. A major reason for that is the weak state of labor markets. Job growth was really robust in 2006, um, and payrolls expanded by 175,000 jobs per month in that time frame. Job growth tailed off in 2007 as uh, layoffs started happening in, happening in the residential construction industry. And payrolls have fallen every month so far this year, with an average loss of 65,000 jobs per month. Consistent with that picture of a worsening labor market, the unemployment rate has risen from a cyclical low of 4.4%, which it reached in March of last year, March a year ago, uh, to 5.5% this May. Another factor that's dampened real income growth is the large increases we've seen in food and energy prices, and this has gotten a lot of headlines. 
Now, forecasting food and energy prices is exceptionally difficult uh, for economists or for anyone, for that matter. So if – so let me just note that the futures markets now are showing fairly flat prices on the whole. Oil, fairly flat from here on out. Even though it's run up fairly rapidly recent, fairly flat from here on out. Same thing with a lot of commodities. Same thing with a lot of uh, food products. If oil and food prices follow the prices, follow the path implied by futures markets, and that's a really big if, but if that's true, then those, then increases in those would not restrain growth. We wouldn't be seeing increase, and that wouldn't be restraining the growth in real income, because it's the growth in energy prices that reduces the growth in real income. So if energy prices just stay the same, it's not going to be a plus or minus for income, for real income growth. Now, as I said, forecasting energy prices is particularly difficult. So you have to take that kind of forecast with a grain of salt. I'll come back to energy prices in a minute when I talk about inflation. So looking at the real economy, looking at growth, weaving together the bad news and the good news, the story you get is of a, an economy that overall is growing at only a, kind of a tepid pace, uh, not very strongly. Over the last two quarters, real GDP has grown at an annual rate of three quarters of 1%. And that's about one quarter of the rate that we could sustain on the long run uh, of our potential, the economy's potential. So we're going through a patch of, of dramatically below par growth. Not negative growth, but bo dramatically below par. Earlier this year, many observers looked at the slow growth we were seeing and they extrapolated that slowdown into an outright decline in economic activity. And many observers concluded that we were in a recession or we were about to enter one. I think the data we've seen so far have not yet shown the broad, sharp declines that are associated with the recession. And in fact, given what we've seen over the last several months, I think the odds of a severe downturn appear to have diminished. Nevertheless, taking everything into account, um, growth in, out in output and income, even though it's positive and not negative, is still pretty slow, and employment is clearly declining. If you look ahead, consumer spending, as I said, is likely to be bolstered by uh, those government stimulus checks that I mentioned. Indeed, I noted the May, the May retail sales report suggested as much. Beyond that, though, there's legitimate concerns about growth. Most importantly, if the labor market continues to contract, uh, then consumer income and consumers' spending is likely to suffer and be relatively restrained uh, going forward. The timing and size of any contraction in con commercial construction activity is, is uncertain as well, and that could be a factor hampering growth in the second half. At the same time, though, I've spent a lot of time over my career forecasting, uh, looking at the economy, trying to forecast, looking ahead. Two important lessons that I've picked up over those time periods are relevant today. One is that uh, it's unwise to bet against consumer resilience. Uh, people tend to look forward in their spending decisions, and if, if a, um, a shock or an adjustment is temporary, uh, they tend to look through that and keep, spe keep their spending uh, on stride. This has been a particularly noticeable phenomenon since the 1980s. And second, don't underestimate the power of monetary policy. 
we've uh, at the Federal Open Market Committee have lowered the federal funds rate from five and a quarter percent to two percent in less than eight months. And that's a, a very substantial reduction. That brings the real inflation-adjusted uh, federal funds rate to zero or below, and uh, that's just a substantial amount of stimulus. So I think it's fair to say that there's a good deal of monetary stimulus in the pipeline, and that's going to support uh, activity uh, in the months ahead. So the growth outlook, as I said, has improved a bit since the beginning of the year, but the same cannot be said for the inflation outlook. Um, the latest figures show that inflation is unacceptably high. The price index for personal consumption expenditures increased at about three and a quarter percent over the 12 months that ended in April. And that figure is likely to rise with the May release, given the Friday CPI report. To put that in perspective, I and several other um, observers have suggested that what we ought to target as our as our inflation rate by that measure is about one and a half percent. That's where I'd like to see it average over the long run. So we're fairly high, we're fairly far above um, where I'd like to see inflation over over time. Of course, the price increases uh, that are in that measure, that 3.2 percent measure, um, have been concentrated in the food and energy categories. If you take those out, you get something called the core PCE inflation index, and uh, that's been going up at a rate just slightly above 2%, so not far from where we'd like to see it. Now, core inflation, stripping out food and energy prices, has exhibited a lot more stability over time than overall inflation, which includes food and energy prices. The, the conventional approach is to say, well, Today's core inflation is a good forecast of what core inflation is going to be. And let's look to futures markets to see what food and energy prices are going to be. And so you put those two together and you inevitably end up forecasting that the overall inflation rate is going to converge to whatever the core inflation rate is right about now. Now, um, you know, as I noted, um, Forecasting energy prices is, is kind of difficult. You know, it's these are liquid markets, futures markets, and these kind of competitive markets are incredibly efficient machines for aggregating the views of a broad range of participants in economic markets and giving you a, uh, a, an indicator that's pretty good on average. But having said that, over the last four years, all of our misses, all the misses, that future markets have made as forecasters of energy prices have been on the high side. They've been predominantly on the high side. And as a result, overall inflation has been occasionally about equal to core and occasionally well above core inflation the way it is now. The risk that runs for us is that elevated rates of increase in overall price prices become embedded in people's expectations about what inflation is going to do in the near term going forward. So far, we seem to have dodged this risk. Despite several years of relatively elevated inflation, the public's expectation of future inflation has not become completely adrift the way it did in the 1970s when we got into so much trouble with high inflation. 
We have several ways of gauging expectations. None of them are perfect. They all agree that inflation expectations, even though they're a little bit above where I'd like to see them, uh, have not become uh, completely unstable. That sense of relative stability is consistent with wages, what we see in, in wage bargains. Um, there are no signs now of the kind of wage price spiral that we saw in the 1970s where wages were accelerating. People were trying to pay higher wages and workers were trying to get higher wages in sort of a futile attempt to catch up with inflation. And I say futile because wages are two-thirds of costs in the economy and when wages accelerate, then prices have to accelerate to stay even. So we're not seeing that kind of wage price spiral. In fact, gains in Overall compensation has been remarkably stable over the last couple of years. But that apparent stability of inflation expectations doesn't justify complacency. These expectations build in a sense of how we at the Federal Reserve are going to react going forward. Maintaining credibility, maintaining the stability of those inflation expectations um, require that we continue to behave in a way that's consistent with keeping inflation low and stable over time. And in acting forcefully if inflation expectations should arose. A part of the rationale for the speed with which the Federal Reserve uh, brought down the funds rate at the beginning, particularly at the beginning part of this year, was the risk that the slowdown we were experiencing was going to prove much more severe than we thought. Now, that uncertainty has not entirely uh, disappeared, but my sense, as I said earlier, is that the downside risks have uh, diminished appreciably right now. Just as easing policy aggressively in response to emerging downside risks made eminent sense, withdrawing some of that stimulus when those risks diminish makes eminent sense as well. Moreover, our attention to risk needs to be two-sided, I believe. As we move through this period of low growth, we need to be attuned to the risk that we emerge from this slowdown in growth with inflation following a higher trend as we come out of it than when we went in. And the dan this danger associated with the persistence of elevated inflation warrants an extra me measure of vigilance in making policy in uh, the period ahead, in my view. Uh, that concludes my remarks about the economy.